Attention, attention please, stand by for another episode of When Humanists Attack. When Humanists Attack, they do so gently, perhaps even slyly. When Humanists Attack, they often do so quite politely. When Humanists Attack, they, they don't do so in pursuit of conquest, but in pursuit of change, reform, justice, peace on earth. You might think this makes humanists sound like losers, but you know, to some people, soldiers who go off to war and get wounded or killed for their country sound like losers. Welcome to When Humanists Attack. I'm Roger Kimmel-Smith, your irreverently reverent Jewish Taoist pagan. And it is my great pleasure today to have as our guest, Eric Kaplan. He is an intensely unique individual and a very funny man. Eric Kaplan is a successful comedy writer and TV producer whose extensive Hollywood credits include The Big Bang Theory, for which he was an executive producer, Futurama, for which he won his Emmy in uh, 2002 for Outstanding Animated Program, Malcolm in the Middle, in the middle, of that career, a couple of years with David Letterman back in the 90s, for which he received two Emmy nominations. Uh, he's written episodes of The Simpsons and Flight of the Concords. He owns his own visual effects studio, Mirari Films, based in Los Angeles with a studio in Romania. He's sold program ideas and his own creative work to the Disney Channel, Nickelodeon, Adult Swim, and other TV networks. He's also studied philosophy at the doctoral level and is the author of Does Santa Exist? Uh, also known as Does Santa Exist? Or Does Santa Exist? A philosophical investigation. Before I let you talk, Eric, I'll disclose that I've known you a long time. Eric and I met in fourth grade, to be exact. And so I have the pleasure uh, to have been not only Eric's friend, but collaborator on a few projects back in the day, uh, if that's fair to say. Uh, and I'm not even talking about acting in your high school plays. But so I should disclose to our audience that his reputation, not a reputation, his, his, his aura, this man's aura is one of genius, and it was already strongly emanating in those grade school years. He was the smartest person you'd ever met, and I think our fifth and sixth grade teachers felt that way too. So I'd like to begin by asking you to talk in an open-ended fashion about your childhood or your child self. Specifically, I'm curious about what you have to say now about the child you were I don't know. I feel that's a little bit of a, a shamanic journey you're asking me to go on. When I go back and I try and touch base with that universe, you know, that sort of unformed universe of childhood, I remember things like playing with rocks and staying underneath the piano with the dog. Uh, I remember stuttering, that I had a lot of anxiety about stuttering. 
And I remember the neighborhood in Brooklyn had a kind of phantasmal quality to it, a fantastic quality to it, almost almost dreamlike. And one of the things I wonder is, you know, to what extent that dreamlike quality was a sort of metaphysical dream and to what extent it had to do with emotional dissociation. There's the spiritual dimension of that dream state and then there's a sort of psychological dimension and they're sort of marbled, you know, like remember that vanilla fudge swirl, Briar's ice cream? Uh, <laughs> it's kind of like that, you know, that they seem quite distinct. How, how metaphysical? What, well, you know, that's thinking to you. I, I guess I always liked the intimations ode. You're familiar with that by Wordsworth? No. Well, he talks about how when you're first born and you're a little kid, um, everything, he's, his word is, it seems apparelled in celestial light. It's apparelled in celestial light. And then he says, well, and then as you get older, you start to imitate the various social roles that are offered to you by your society. And, and then he says, um, uh, these things that I have seen, I now can see no more. Where, where is it now, the visionary gleam? Whither have they fled, the glory and the dream? And he says it's because of pre-existence before birth. And he says that when we're children, we haven't yet become part of this universe entirely. And we carry with us the sort of wisps of the previous more infinite existence. So I think that's probably true for everybody when they look at childhood, that there's a sense of like, that the terrors are more terrifying, the joys are more joyful, and everything has a sort of dreamlike infinitude to it. And I think that's true for me. But then I'll also say, sort of looking at it with the eyes of experience back at innocence, that there's a sense in which you can also say that that's emotional dissociation. Experiences in our lives have a dreamlike quality very often when we're not um, integrated. Um, and you know, if you're looking at episodes of trauma, which we cannot quite put together, um, those will be recorded by the brain in this sort of dreamlike way, like there's not a continuous flow. And that's definitely something I've noticed about my childhood, which is it's, my memories of it are very, very patchy. Um, like sometimes I think that I can remember about six things. <laughs> that's an exaggeration. But I view that as being a sign of sort of dissociation. Because I think if you're integrated, one of the signs of integration is that you can have an autobiographical memory that incorporates, um, it incorporates the emotional and the intellectual. Like you're not taking a step out of your life cognitively, but you're also not, like there's sort of two attachment styles and the, the anxious attachment, whenever you ask an anxious person what their past was like, they relive it. And they're like, I was there and my mother was yelling at me and she shouldn't have, and I don't know why she was, but she was. And then the, the avoidant attachment person is gonna be like, well, many things happened, you know, there were problems, <laughs> you know? And, and what I seek in my life and what I think is a good thing to seek for is, is this sort of integration, which lets you have a more kind of flexible ability to recount your past. And I'll tell you for my early childhood, I don't have that. It's more of a hallucination 
you know, or a series of like powerful images. Um, so I don't know, like I say, I'm giving you two perspectives and I, and I sort of think the psychological and the spiritual, like we're not supposed to, well, I shouldn't say supposed to, who am I to say what we're supposed to do? But in my own life, I find it helpful to have both, like to kind of look at it with, with binocular vision um, and consider both as real. You started to say something about a sadness. Yeah, I had a sort of a sad household. My brother, Andy, uh, had been born and lived about five years and died before I was born. And I think my wow. parents were both grieving that experience. So I sort of grew up in that atmosphere where both like, you know, my parents were happy, <laughs> you know, that they had another baby. But at the same time, I think they felt a sense of fear that like, oh, am I going to be taken from them the way Andy was taken from them? So I think there was a kind of a a uh, 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 heaviness, <laughs> you know, I don't want to say heavier than your listeners. I'm sure they have their own crosses to bear, but as I experienced it, it was a sort of a heaviness. Um, but I didn't yeah, really, it, it certainly uh, corresponds with my memory in a way that I couldn't have put my finger on. Then there was a sense of impending echo around those spaces in that cavernous Victorian house. Mm -hmm. Interesting. We went to high school together and then parted ways. Uh, yeah. And, and your early career directions, here's a biographical question, you know. Uh, what, what, what was that like, finding your way towards, towards career? When I got out of college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was like, well, maybe I'll be a roofer. So I was doing some roofing, and I was terrible at it. And I was like, maybe I'll be a mover, and I was really terrible at it. So then I was like, what am I going to do? And I, you need to do something. You can't just do nothing. And I, I didn't like living in my parents' house. So I was like, well, I've always wanted to know more about Buddhism. So I became an English teacher in Thailand. And I really liked that. And then I came back. Um, and then I was like, oh, no, I'm really sad again. What am I going to do? So I became, I went to philosophy grad school, but I really didn't know what I was doing and I was not accessing my wise mind. I was just sort of staggering uh, down the street like a drunkard. Um, and, and then I ended up getting almost all my PhD done, but I got scared that I wouldn't be able to get a job. Like I liked the concept of intellectual freedom and it turned out to get a job, I would have to get like nine or 10 recommendation letters. And this, this sort of wigged me out. Probably it shouldn't have because I could have gotten letters recommendation. I was a good grad student, <laughs> but I, I got wigged out and scared. Um, so then I was like, what can I do? So I thought, well, why don't I, why don't I try and be a TV writer? Um, and I said, okay, I'm not going to write my dissertation. I will put that on ice and I'll take the next year trying to be a TV writer. And I ultimately landed a job at Late Show with David Letterman. And I guess I liked the idea that I was writing things that people would, would read or, you know, and or watch. Like I liked the idea of, of doing something that had some kind of uh, impact on large numbers of people. Like maybe I was just too anxious and I was afraid if I wrote something that nobody read it would just be like writing something in the in the sand on the beach 
that would just get washed away and it would have no effect on any other human brain at all. So I was nervous about that. So I felt better uh, like working in something that had some some greater perceived cultural relevance. So. You had a considerable writing experience and some playwriting in your background before yeah. you jumped into this. I had been writing short stories and little plays since I was a little kid. Um, and it was something that uh, that I liked and I enjoyed. But but I think maybe the voice of my mother in my head, I always sort of felt like, like a serious thing is to be, you know, a scientist or a doctor. And not being a scientist or a doctor seemed kind of frivolous. But I had enjoyed writing and 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 been working at writing, like I say, since I was seven or so. I mean, I wrote magazine articles in college, but by the time I actually uh, reported to work, you know, I had some some degree of, of skill in my hands. Um, I mean, nothing great, but at least at least I could write a joke, that kind of thing. I can certainly attest that you were always funny and maybe you knew it. What jokes do you remember from when we were kids? <laughs> I guess the easiest thing to remember is the the film strip spoof that you and I oh, did yeah. together. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Paleolithic times. I remember that. I'm still proud of that. I still stand behind that. I remember a shot <laughs> of either you or me in a tree as Paleolithic man. One was Ugga and one of us was Bugga. We had a teacher who would always play on Wisconsin. And we included <laughs> on Wisconsin at the end of that film strip. I do remember that. I remember that as being very, um, that film strip as having a lot of endings. <laughs> <laughs> that we kept thinking of more funny things to put at the end. So we did. I think it was, I was very successful. I'm sorry. It's been lost. We in were the developing shtick. Yeah. I remember perhaps the last time I was at your house, we were probably in our twenties. Mm -hmm. You uh, screened it for us. Oh, we still had it. Oh my goodness. Do you remember? Um, what do you think of the child society? No. So we used to go around and do surveys for, I don't know if it was for a newspaper or just for our own amusement. And we do surveys. And one of them was like, what do you think of school? To which one kid memorably responded, it sucks the big wazoo. And then at some point, someone suggested the topic, what do you think of the child society? <laughs> and we did that survey. What do you think of the child society? Although I, I know I continue to have no idea what the child society is or what anyone could think of it. <laughs> and we'd, we'd oh, get in a deliberately aggressive way. Be like, what do you think of the child society? And people would be like, uh, what? <laughs> How about this one? Garden world. Oh, dun 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 and then the, the outro music would come back. Oh, the tomato is not a vegetable, it is a fruit. But also always, you would always introduce yourself. Was I Ralph Snodgrass? No, you were Mel Shanks. Oh, Mel Shanks. <laughs> and I was Phil Shanks, Mel Shanks is not here today. <laughs> <laughs>
the the funny uh thing or the the serious thing about the funny thing is that comedy has remained at the the core of your work and you've gone quite far at it when we spoke just the other day uh, in the middle of a long and very erudite rant about how the Kabbalah spiraled out into contemporary esotericism, which it did, who stopped, who say, but hey, I'm a comedy writer, I'm not a scholar. That's true. That's but true. you're quite familiar with scholarship. You told us you got to all but dissertation, I suppose. No, I have, I have a dissertation now. I have a PhD in philosophy. I returned, Congratulations. I returned, thank you. I returned to philosophy uh, and I finished my dissertation about three years ago and I received my PhD. So, oh, so I, I love no it. longer have this sense of, uh, um, of phoniness. <laughs> so what was the topic of your dissertation? It was Kierkegaard and the funny. See, funny is the thread. Kierkegaard has this notion that human life or human being, or you know, the best way to live your life, or the most real way to live your life, is as a tension between uh, what he calls the factors. But it's kind of like the tension is between the eternal and the temporal, between the determined and the free. That there's sort of two perspectives on life. There's our there's our finite, embodied, vulnerable self, and there's our eternal, invulnerable self. And he says that what it is to be spiritual is to take a stand in your life on how you relate these two factors. And he thinks that what most people tend to do is pick one or the other. So either you're just like, I'm going to party, <laughs> I'm going to live the life of an animal and just have, you know, ups and downs and try and enjoy the highs and avoid the lows. Or you're like, I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to, I'm going to separate myself from this world and ascend to a higher perspective. He mm -hmm. says you should tense in the contradiction. You should stretch in the contradiction and feel both sides as keenly as possible. So rather than kind of coming up with the lukewarm water of Spinal Tap, you're sort of simultaneously experiencing the extreme cold and the extreme heat, um, which is paradoxical. He says it's sort of like you cannot actually coherently explain this, but you can live it. You make an infinite commitment to the finite by virtue of the absurd, is one of his slogans. An infinite con commitment to the finite by yes. way of the absurd. Yeah. All right. It's starting, it's starting to head towards funny. Right. Um, the funny is at least acknowledging that that is a significant part of life that contradiction and dwelling in contradiction has something to do with what's funny. Um, yeah, he, yeah. He, his theory of the sort of sumum bonum, like the best way to live your life, it's not the humorous. He thinks the existential humorist is very, very high. Like it's a very, very good thing to achieve, but it's not the best. The best is what he calls um, religiousness B, or faith, and that is falling in love with your beloved, even though you see the sword hanging over her head and know that you could lose her at any moment, but not protecting yourself from that experience, just being infinitely vulnerable and open 
to the possibility of disaster. Um, that's what he thinks is the best thing. And he thinks that comedy is not quite there, but it's very good. <laughs> so, so that's that's some Kierkegaard for your listeners. And if they're interested, I'll send them my dissertation or they can read the concluding unscientific postscript and the sickness unto death and concept of anxiety and see if they can make any sense of those. <laughs> they're welcome to give it a shot. It uh, allows you to draw on the resource which uh, as far as I can see is endless in you of curiosity <laughs> including curiosity of a scientific bent I'm remembering a play you wrote that we put on in the high school brick prison playhouse uh, what, was it monkey and the baboon oh yeah or, monkey and the baboon right, was the a lot of science in that I don't remember <laughs> Well, the young character towards the end has a monologue that essentially asks questions you could consider cosmological, but that seem to be about physics. I remember Doc Rubenstein, he was freaked out by the, the sort of weird sadness at the end of that play, which I was proud of. I, I had a good taste. <laughs> I had a good taste because it ended with like a kind of a a dissociated weird father and a dissociated weird little kid having this surreal conversation with each other. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I'm happy to be reminded of that because because I'm very self-critical. So I sort of tend to think, oh, everything I wrote in the past was garbage. But then I'm like, nah, now that I think about it, that's pretty good. I, I'm happy with that. And it's clear from what we've said that you know, comedy uh, can be considered central to a, not just philosophical, but a, a spiritual, even perhaps a religious stance about life. How does this all add up for you? Because I know you've also pursued religions, including the Judaism into which we, we were both born and our family positions. I'll tell you the the experience I have at listening to you ask the question. Yeah. So the first thing that I'll, I do is I'm sort of like, oh man, religion, faith. Why don't I do the philosophy move and say, I don't know what any of those mean because no. I sort of fear that they may mean different things to different people, or they may carry with them a whole host of assumptions that I don't necessarily buy into. So, so I sort of come at it, almost wanting to reject the question. Is there something behind it that we can avoid some of these $10 words? I mean, and by the way, if you and I can't communicate, what hope is there for the Palestinians and the Israelis? Because we grew up two blocks away from each other and we've known each other since we were three or something or 11. So what, what's bugging you? What do you want to talk about? <laughs> I think what I'm really driving at is how deep does the comic go in this, in, in this framework of questions? I have different emotional moves in my psychological makeup. There's going towards <laughs> it and there's pulling back from it. And then there's, being ambivalent about it. 
And comedy seems to be somewhere in the third category. But at the end of the day, like you said, it's like making love with the universe. There are going to be times for all three and there'll be times for none of the above. We find comedy near, if not at, the center of your worldview. Would it be too much to say toward the center of your cosmology? You know, you do cover the topic of comedy quite extensively in the Santa book. Does Santa exist? You pose comedy as a sort of alternative path to the paths of logic and of mysticism. What I like about comedy is that it enables one to take in, I would almost say more data, <laughs> you know, that we don't need to limit ourselves to one coherent way of looking at our lives, but Which we can. again. Yeah, we okay. can tense in the contradiction. You can have pets and still be a vegetarian. And in a sense, in certain circumscribed circumstances, that's okay. Now, is it always okay? That's a, perhaps a question for another time because it's, it's a hard one. Um, but I do think that one of the advantages of comedy is it, it enables a sort of um, forgiving, charitable approach to our own internal multiplicity. And it also enables us to have a forgiving, uh, tolerant approach to our neighbors and our brothers and sisters and their multiplicity and how they're different from us. So I am, I am guardedly pro-comedy. <laughs> it is the smiling face, you know, in, in that duality. Yeah. What you're saying also, uh, I'm reminded of Zhuang Zhu, who had- Very funny, very funny man, yes. Uh, uh, yes, who was the funniest, uh, you know, of the, uh, of the scriptural writers that I know of around the world. But yeah, yeah. Also, also very much about, I mean, it could have come straight from him, hang in the contradiction, gain the maximal experience from every opportunity to do so, but stand aside from it. He has this thing about the hinge of Tao or Tao's, where you could sort of watch them all and experience them all, but, you know, not be shaken by them yeah great man wonderful man as my dad would say wonderful <laughs> uh one of the reasons i wanted to get you on this thread is that i see the comic as as humanistic a humanistic angle on or approach to the larger or ultimate questions that you know are often called the questions of religion i had a teacher huh. one Stanley Cavell, who said that there's there's nothing more human than to try to not be human. But I mean, look, yes, <laughs> I agree with you. I'm reminded of the last conversation we had on the phone a couple of days ago, which I'll disclose was our, you and my first phone conversation in decades. Yeah. You said something like our conception of the human and our conception of the divine have always co-evolved in a kind of dialectic. Well, if I said that, I must have been cooking with gas because I think that's true. It could also perhaps be called a kind of romance. It reminds me yeah. 
of you know the pagan side of my of my triplicate identity where the the sun and the earth have this dialectic that is essentially you know romantic and generative yeah john dewey uh used to tell us to watch out for this thing called the observer theory of knowledge and well, the way I think about that is very about what it would mean to avoid the observer theory of knowledge is very much uh, simpatico with what you just said, which is the world and we are making love to each other. We're involved in this erotic relationship with each other, and that is generative um, and creating new possibilities, new worlds, new conceptions of humanity, new gods. If you're a writer and you're going to work on someone else's show, it's almost like they have made the chess set. And they're like, there's two horses and there's white and there's black and there's 64 squares. And now you can play a game, but you're not making the chess pieces. What I found was an exciting possibility on the Big Bang Theory was that people were both trying to understand the world and they had love lives. So they were both. They were both people trying to think about their place in the world and people trying to find intimate affection. Um, and I found that that was a good grist for my contradiction mill, you know, because people could think one thing, but they could express something different in their emotional lives. And I liked writing about a physicist falling in love with a neurobiologist and what that had to say about the relative priority of their fields and things like that. And then at the end of it, I came up with something which I liked, which was um, there's this concept in physics of that broken symmetries need to be explained. And I was like, why do symmetries need to be explained? Why do we assume, why do, why do asymmetries need to be explained? Why do we assume that the universe is symmetrical and have to come up with a reason why it's yeah, asymmetrical? That sounds like platonic prejudice. It is, it's an ancient Greek religious idea that the most perfect things are symmetrical or it's just a religious slash uh, uh, aesthetic <laughs> idea. If you look at wabi-sabi, you know, Japanese stuff, which is, you know, all kind of grotty and muddy and asymmetrical, like a cloud. If you're doing physics from that background, you wouldn't feel the need to say, why is the world asymmetrical? It's like, why wouldn't it be asymmetrical? <laughs> so, so that's what in the finale of the Big Bang, uh, Sheldon and Amy win their Nobel for is a theory of super asymmetry. That there's a, quantum physics nowadays is about supersymmetry, and they develop a theory of super asymmetry. Um, and I asked some physicists, you know, we had consultants on the show. I was like, is there anything wrong with this? Like, is there a reason why physics couldn't turn out to go in the direction of super asymmetry? And they said, no. But then I was worried, well, surely someone has come up with the phrase super asymmetry before and beat me to it. But they hadn't. So we did create the notion of the ultimate explanation of reality being that it's a fundamentally asymmetrical world, which is, you know, it's a cockeyed way of looking at things. So I was I was happy that kind of brought together physics and and comedy in a in a satisfying way. What about in the writer's room? You know, uh, where's the the clash of comedy and philosophy? there is there you know do you kind of have a shared viewpoint among your colleagues or is there more tension in my colleagues are reasonably interested in philosophy but less interested in philosophy than i am 
And if it's philosophy on the table, they tend to say, Eric, what should we say about philosophy that will not make us look like we don't know what we're talking about? Writing is very much sort of a craft of storytelling, more than it's taking ideology and trying to cram it down the audience's throat. So 99.99% of the work in the writer's room is like, well, what could be a story that we could tell with these characters that will be funny and interesting and will make the, the people watching it feel something? And once somebody says, well, I don't know, what if um, uh, Leonard decides he's going to tell his mother that uh, he's angry at her when she comes to visit, but when she comes to visit, he's afraid. I was like, well, that sounds interesting. And that sounds emotionally complex enough to, to get people to care. And then it's figuring out what could happen next, you know? So it's much more following the almost like Zhuangzi's uh, um, butcher. It's much more following the flow of the real emotion and the real reality than it is trying to impose an agenda on the audience. Um, right. And it, well, that it, sounds it, like it's also sort of, I mean, I know you were uh, and maybe still are into D&D and dungeon yeah. mastering. Uh, so you use the illusion, the illusion earlier to playing a game with the characters with, you know, the, the limited functionalities of each character. So that, you know, is, 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 am I on the right track here? Absolutely. So when I was a kid, I had, when, when I went to like a zoo or a museum, my parents would let me get a souvenir. And the souvenir was usually a rubber animal of some kind made in Hong Kong. So I had a, I had a bat, I had a couple of snakes, I had a, uh, a pangolin actually. <clears throat> And I had them in a, remember we went to creative day camp? So I do I, remember. I had them in a bag uh, for a creative day camp bag. And I watched a lot of Star Trek, the original series. So I would play. And if I was a girl, that would be, this would be called playing with dolls. But, and it was playing with dolls, but it is gendered. So I didn't consider it playing with dolls. I considered it playing with my, my rubber animals. Um, and I would tell stories that were sort of derivative of Star Trek. Like there was, a, I don't remember if the bat was, I think the bat was the captain. Um, and it was funny, these things were made of such a sort of a crappy rubber that all the appendages would fall off. So they got, you know, abraded by my play. And, and a long slinky that had gotten tangled up was the science officer and the bat was the captain. And I don't remember who the pangolin was and they would have various adventures. That's just what writing is. <laughs> it's just a grown-up version, only instead of a rubber bat, I could have Jim Parsons. <laughs> In the Santa book, you, uh, you know, sort of put the reader on, on one level while using the, the Santa framework to uh, go at all sorts of real live, you know, and 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 very deep philosophical questions about what approaches are are worthwhile. I describe the book as a sort of a workbook that it's called Does Santa Exist? But it's about things that we're not sure if we believe in. And I instruct the reader to take whatever 
they're not sure if they believe in, whether it's God or, or love or democracy, and do a search and replace. And if you're worried about if romantic love exists, exists, you should take the book and take a Sharpie and cross out Santa and call the book, Does Romantic Love Exist? And just keep reading it like that. Because one of the things I, I noticed was there was a certain religious fury building in our country and in our world. And people had this fury towards each other based upon, I would say, rejecting a part of themselves that they then projected on the other and scapegoated the other. And I wanted to lower the emotional temperature of discussions about religion. I wanted people to be able to say in a more loving way to each other that they had had a revelation that the world or the cosmos was a certain way, but that maybe their neighbor had a different such revelation. So colleges and universities seem to be now a, a, a vector for the virus, very unfortunately. And it made me think of a work of yours, which I know only the title of, uh, but maybe you want to say more, Zombie College. Oh, yeah, I like Zombie College. Zombie College was from an early, early iteration of internet entertainment when it could only be these very simple flash cartoons. And the concept of zombie college was it's a world in which um, brain eating zombies exist and but people are sort of okay with it. And the idea came to me, I think roughly around the time that I was in a car accident and I was like, whoa, why do we do this? How can people live in a world where like, I mean, I think, I think the num like it's like 40,000 Americans die on the road every year, something like that, like significantly larger than the number of people who died in the September 11th attacks die in car accidents and many more are injured. Uh, actually, I wasn't injured, but I was just like, I could have been, or I could have injured somebody else. And I thought this human ability to like, pretend that horrific things aren't happening or don't matter is really fascinating. So uh, zombie college normal. Is kind of about that. Yeah, to normalize the abnormal. So zombie college is about that with a little love story as well, you know. I could ask you about what it's like to own a uh a, a visual effects studio, how that an animation studio. Animation studio more than visual effects. Um although we do visual effects as well. Um, well, one of the things I like about it is the ability to make sort of budget and tech decisions in the same head, in this case, mine or mine plus the client uh, with artistic decisions. So it's nice to be able to think, well, here's the budget, what kind of trade-offs am I willing to make within that budget to achieve a particular artistic goal? Um, so I like that. I like being able to say, well, it turns out that backgrounds are really expensive, but character designs are less expensive. So if we can have uh, fewer places where the characters go, we can have more characters. Or that this particular uh, comedy 
doesn't require sophisticated animation. It, it just requires a pose and then a snap to the next pose. So therefore the amount of time that someone needs to spend animating it can be less uh, and therefore maybe we can achieve this comedic story for a network that has a, a smaller budget than uh, than we'd like, or you know, uh, than ideal. But there's still a way to work within those constraints. So, so that's what I like about it. I like being able to make the the fiscal, technological, and creative decisions as part of a single system. Can you talk about a, a project? The thing we did that is our, our sort of crown jewel that I'm most proud of is the Drinky Crow Show, which is based on an underground comic strip called Mackie's created by Tony Millionaire. Um, and while I put a lot of my own sort of writing chops into the story and the character development, um, the world and the chess set uh, were created by Tony. Some of it had to do with contractual uh, obligations, that there were times when I was working on shows where I was exclusive as a writer to that show, so I wasn't writing the projects that I was doing through Morari. It sounds like you have developed in your career more towards full producer, or are you still very largely centered on a, a writer's identity? The second, the second. Um, Producers in TV are largely writers, and in large part, I think, because of the demands of time, it's a very writer-centric uh, medium, as opposed to features, which are director-centric medium. So being a producer in TV largely means that you're writing a script, and then if someone is going to make that script, that you're involved in the decisions of casting and set design, costume, stuff like that. But it's it's basically writing. I mean, and if you think about it, writing is sort of creating the blueprint for the house. So it, it, speaking as a writer, it makes sense that we should be in charge because we write the blueprint for the house and then we figure out what kind of wood and what the car color the carpet should be and all that. I'm sure a director will tell you why I'm wrong, but he's not on your show, so what's he what's he gonna do? <laughs> Chaw raw beef. I wonder how you uh, developed your chops to on story structure type stuff, you know, because you 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 always had you could always just spell out ideas, you know, and take them there's, somewhere. But story structure is different. I definitely think the way you develop any kind of skill is you care enough about it to try and do it. And if you fail, you feel bad. I thought that character was going to be likable, but everybody has told me they hate him. Oh, well, that's too bad. I guess I'll try again. But the sort of, it's, it's, it's like the Taoist thing, that you're, the explanation is not going to be as data rich as the real reason. Because anytime something succeeds, I can tell you very clearly why it doesn't succeed. I can say, like, take your favorite thing and I'll explain to you why it doesn't work. So that means the explanation is not, is not fine-grained enough to capture the success or failure. We're wired uh, to associate the intellect with the critical stance. Maybe there's a way to rewire ourselves where the intellect 
is more uh, creative and less uh, less critical. There is the uh, the notion of the difference between the writer and the editor. You can't have both hats on at the same time. I imagine that in the writer's room, you have to, especially if you're if you know you have the executive producer hat. It's fun to be able to just be spontaneous and just say a bunch of stuff <laughs> and then have somebody else have the job of saying, you, Eric, you went too crazy, dial it back. Right. Rather than you're right, to have to observe yourself, like pull yourself back and let yourself go at the same time is challenging. <laughs> Even Zhuangzi has trouble with that one. Even Zhuangzi, and, and look how wise he was. <laughs> By the way, I became a Chinese philosopher because oh. my book was translated into Chinese. Hey, there you go. <laughs> I have no idea what they make of it in China. Like, I'd be curious to know, like, to talk to someone who read it in Chinese, like, what, <laughs> why do you like this? Did, did you like it? What did you think? Um, but um, I, I even wonder what they know about the whole Santa bullshit. That's a good question, but yeah, so, but I did get a call from my publishers, like, we're selling really well in China. Um, okay. And, but I, I went through some pages and it's, it's a good translation. Um, How do you know? <laughs> How do I know? I think I just maybe used a little bit of Google Translate or something. I don't know. I don't know how I reached that. As I was, as those words were leaving my lips, I was like, why do you think that? But I, I do think it. And you, uh, you know about the War with Grandpa movie, I assume. Oh, yeah. Congratulations. That's exciting. When does it actually come out? Oh, they're still using October 9th as the date. And huh. I imagine that somewhere in the United States, there are screens that are open. Right. And will they also release it on a streaming service? I think we're, we're waiting to see. Uh, the, the producers have the rights. They're this couple, Marvin and Rosa Peart, uh, who were, you know, somewhere in the Weinstein universe. Uh -huh. uh, originally a Weinstein project slated for release in 2017. Robert and De Niro, I, you couldn't do better. Uh, I've seen it. It is very good. He didn't use any of my dad's jokes, which was a sensible decision. The genesis of the situation, as he always would tell the story when asked by schoolchildren, was shortly after uh, we had moved into the Rugby Road house, I uh, was delighted to live there and told them, I love living here. I love this room. I don't want to ever live anyplace else. I would have been maybe seven at this time. And uh, so my father just immediately hatched on the idea of depriving your character of the thing he loves the most. Uh-huh. And but the character the is not that. based on you exactly. It's a it's a fantasy character. No, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I would say in the book, uh he modeled some of the kids' friends uh on his notion, I think, of you. And oh, I'm in uh, this movie? You know, Who's based on no, me? You're not, you're not in the movie. But I might be in the book. The friend situation is entirely different. It's this big Hollywood director type, Tim Hill, 
did the war with grandpa. You know, he did the SpongeBob movie. Oh, I like the SpongeBob movie, actually. Really? (laughs) Okay, this is good to know. Uh, But they opened up the War with Grandpa book in uh, terms of giving the grandpa character, who in the book really was just sort of the sad widow, and we only saw him within the context of the, the house, the kid's house. At least here, you know, they gave him... Uh, a couple of friends who are played by Cheech Marin and and Christopher Walken. Uh, All right. You know, they become this sort of uh, geezer crew. There's this big dodgeball scene they play against the kids. And um, also give him a budding love interest, who's the Jane Seymour character. The genesis of the project was that the eight-year-old son of Marvin and Rosa Payart said, hey, this is a good book. Why, do you, why don't you adapt it? Oh, good for him. Well, he should get a and producer they, credit. And they gave him executive producer line. Nice. <laughs> in the cut I saw, in fact, uh, he was on screen for about a 45-second introduction to the film before, wow. before it screened. That's exciting. And then, and then the Parrots took it to the Weinsteins, and the Weinsteins took it to De Niro? Yes, I suppose. That's nice. Yeah, I don't know how to do it. Good for your that. dad, because he lived long enough to know that this was happening, right? Oh, yes, for sure. Uh, and for to decide that he didn't want to try to involve himself because they weren't particularly asking him to. Uh, and so he was rather comfortable, it seemed to me, uh, just letting the project go. You know? uh-huh. But I, I do think when we had the opportunity to watch you know, a, a nearly final cut. He he did so. And good. I, I hope he liked it. Good. That's it good. Funny, you know? Eric Linus Kaplan, what a delightful and awesome and wide ranging conversation. And what a delight to see you after so long. It was a pleasure, Roger. I really appreciate you reaching out. Thank you for joining us on When Humanists Attack. And thank you, uh, YouTube subscribers, for uh, tuning in to When Humanists Attack. Do all the things, like and follow and obey, won't you? Or just have a nice day. <laughs>